Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Uh, if you've listened to past podcasts, you've heard me make the same introduction over and over again, where we talk about um, all the past guests in our 40-plus podcast episodes, uh, including our staff, board members, uh, people in office, like State Representative Brian Cutler, um, people who are doing research, like uh, Dr. James Connors from Hershey Medical Center, and many others who have a diverse perspective on this disease and how they're tackling it from all angles. Uh, we also talked to many researchers, and we're going to be talking about research today as part of our conversation for this podcast. Uh, but the most important perspective we have when it comes to ALS is those living with it day by day, and that includes my guest today, Andrew Miller. Uh, I'm a big fan of the name Andy because that's my son's name, so we should get along very well, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we get started, uh, if you want to learn more about the programs and services here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter, you can go to www.alsphiladelphia.org. Uh, you can go and follow us on social media. All channels are at ALS Philadelphia, all one word. That's at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Vine, other things. And make sure to find us on iTunes at the ALS Podcast. Again, ALS Philadelphia is a good way to find it. And subscribe, vote, leave comments, recommend it, uh, so we can continue to spread awareness about ALS and how people can get involved. Uh, before I get on to the t- conversation today, I just want you to know that if you have an idea for a podcast uh, topic or someone you think really needs to add their perspective to it, you can email me. Tony at ALSPhiladelphia.org. With all that being said, now out of the way, uh, like I said, my guest today is Andy Miller, or Andrew Miller. Andy, how do, how do you want me to um, address you? Andy's fine. Andy's fine. Well, I mean, my son doesn't like to be called Andy, so, um, <laughs> but he's only, he's not even two, so he doesn't like to be called a lot of things. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking forward to our talk today. Um, Andy is living with ALS. Um, if you've been listening to our most recent podcast, You've heard from Alexander and Noah Snyder-Mackler, and their father, Scott Mackler, passed away from ALS, but they have the Mackler 5K, which Andy was a part of, and so we're going to talk about that and a lot of other things today. So, Andy, thanks for joining our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, um, I'm new to you. You're new to me. Uh, Tell me um, your history with ALS, your personal history with it, what you'd want to share. Um. So it, it's kind of interesting. I think um, uh, you mentioned the Scott Mackler events. Uh, probably some 10 years ago, uh, I was a fairly active runner and actually did that race, I think, two years in a row and saw Scott at the finish line both times, not really even thinking about the disease so much as the race. Uh, running it with my friends. Um, so I think that, you know, other than other than that, I had no interaction with ALS. I think in 2014, the Ice Bucket Challenge, I saw it all happening, really didn't, didn't even faze me that, that that would ever happen to me. And it kind of ironically, after the, you know, the Ice Bucket Challenge kind of, slowed down is when I actually got my diagnosis. So, um, I think for me and, um, 
running the last few few years um, was doing some long distance events. Not really super fast, but really enjoyed it. Um, did a an off road marathon in in uh, September of 2013, and kind of noticed halfway through the race that I had some really weird cramping. Um, you know, I, I always had no issue with with my uh, hydration and had that hydration ever causing the lack of hydration ever causing cramping. But here I was in the middle of this race and I could I could barely move my my left leg out in front of me, which was kind of weird. Mm. So I didn't really I didn't really think anything about it. Yeah, and a lot of um, symptoms from people are weird. They're not like a symptom like, oh, I'm having chest pains or um, I'm right. having migraines. So this was, um, <clears throat> so this was like in mile 20 or something of a, a marathon and, and really uh, kind of just was just fighting to get through it. And I think I slowed down a little and just kind of slowly loosened back up and made it across the finish line. But um, in hindsight, was, <clears throat> I, you know, after the race was talking to people, oh yeah, you got to take this, take that, and thought, okay, next time I'll have to, you know, watch my nutrition a little, little better. But so after that race, um, the running uh, through that winter didn't do a lot of running through that winter. But then, so we came into early 2014, and one one of the things that I augmented my running with was. Uh, doing yoga here at work. We actually have somebody come in and do yoga once a day, or once a week. And um, <clears throat> I kind of prized myself on being one of the class students, one of the best students in the class. <laughs> and I noticed that I was suddenly not able to do some of the balancing moves on my left leg. And it was very bizarre. I couldn't figure out why. I did not have any muscle weakness that I could tell. Um, as the months went on, I started to have what I felt some weakness in my big toe on my left leg, which was weird. Yeah, that's not something you would normally think about. No, and it kind of slowly, very slowly, progressed to the point where about... 2014, I stopped running altogether because I could I couldn't keep up with anybody, and you know, so my my foot was just not my left foot was just not springing off the way it used to, which I think is somewhat ironic because I believe that's the same thing that that Scott Mackler had uh, had noticed he self diagnosed himself while running I think. Yeah, he had noticed problems because he was an active runner, and which is part of the reason we have the they did the five k. You're right. Right. So, uh, so I stopped running, and then you know, all right, it's time to go to the doctors. Went to the doctor, um, family doctor, and then to a nerve specialist, which kind of was a bit ironic that they didn't. Well, so they they. They checked my leg and said, your leg is fine. It's something in your spine. So then I went for MRIs of my spine. 
and then MRIs of my lower pelvis, looking for pinched nerves, um, and then uh, nothing was there. So then they sent me back again, looking for something uh, in my upper spine and my thoracic spine, and saw nothing there. And that's when they said it's time for you to go to the neurologist. So I uh, so stopping running, and I was supposed to do that that marathon again. So we do, we do it as a group here. So a bunch of people at work, you know, some of us run it, some of us hike it. And so in 2014, end of September 2014, I was supposed to run this thing and convince my wife to do it. Uh, that year, and I kind of hobbled mm. <laughs> over, I think it took us 12 hours and 30 minutes to finish, uh, but I was able to, so I wasn't all that bad, but I, it, I was able to basically hike um, this race with my wife uh, over 12 hours, still not knowing at that point what the heck was going on. Um, and I think just before that, I had, uh, I'd made a comment that I'd never made before in training for this event. Um, again, with the group from, from work, we're out in the woods here, uh, around Newark, Delaware on trails. And we did like, I don't know, 10 or 13 mile, um, training hike and noticed that I was even having trouble keeping up with some of the people that were going to be hiking it. And I, I made the comment that I felt like I had one and a half legs, which is where that, my monic my new moniker came from. <laughs> oh, that makes, I was wondering where that started. So that's, yeah, so, you know, it was clear that something was up with my left leg and it, it felt like, only half, I only got half out of it. So that's where that name came from. So I did the mega, was able to get through it. Um, and then November or October, I got into a neurologist. They basically did all of the nerve survey work over again, probably a little bit uh, more detailed review, um, the neurological exam. Um, and said, uh, basically, we you know, we see some out some abnormalities, and um, basically, what we need to do is wait a little while and then look at you again to see if there's any progression. And she mentioned, oh, and you know, if you go and and look at your um, if you if you Google these type of symptoms. Just to let you know, you're going to find ALS is going to be one of them. And was so she that saying was, that so that you would be prepared, or like she wasn't just trying to scare you, but more like, look. No, she wanted me to be prepared that now that I've run through all this testing, and she told me the results of the testing, which was, um, you know, some of the erratic nerve signals, um, and. I was getting the twitching, the muscle twitching, um, and then sometimes I would get some some nasty Charlie horses in my leg um, in the middle of the night. So if you Google those kind of symptoms, ALS comes.
so uh, she was warning me, and I'm and I, you know, okay, yeah, whatever. It's, it can't be that. And then um, I think the the next few weeks, I think I drove myself completely nuts thinking about it. Because the more and more I thought about it, the more and more those symptoms perfectly matched the ALS scenario. So, I mean, I, I was to the point of needing <laughs> needing some help to keep my composure. I, had, I was on medication that doctor prescribed, but eventually got back to the neurologist and she did her review again and and said that she she thought that I had ALS. So that was that was pretty devastating. Um, yeah. So, look. Do you think that make that looking into it first and having that in your head? Do you think that made it harder or easier? Because it's it's not it's never easy getting it, but. Um, we have had so many stories over the years, whether it's on the internet or even before the internet was big, where people looked at books and having knowledge beforehand made the diagnosis even scarier. Yeah. So I, and you know, initially it was, Oh no, I can't, this can't be happening. And then, then it was kind of some relief because I went for probably two or three weeks knowing this potential was there. And, you know, I really had a tough time getting my mind off of that. <laughs> so once it, once I finally got that diagnosis, I won't say I was relaxed, but some of the stress went away because there wasn't any unknown. And about a month later, I was able to confirm the diagnosis. And I've been with him uh, ever since. Um, but uh, knowing it, knowing about it, I think that you know, the first few months after diagnosis, I really don't want to remember because I was kind of mentally useless. <laughs> yeah, but, I only imagine. And I think that I, I, I've got to mention that I am an extremely lucky ALS patient. Um, when I look at, you know, some of my new friends that I've met that have ALS that are progressing a lot faster than me, I'm still walking. You know, it's been a year since my diagnosis, you know, a year and 10 months since I noticed something. And I'm still walking. So I walk. I walk with an AFO. I need a uh, ankle foot orthotic um, to keep my foot from dropping and to keep me from tripping while I'm walking. But um, you know, I really don't have a lot to complain about. <laughs> and I'm I'm really super lucky in that respect. So after after it took a few months for me to figure out that that my progression was was and hopefully will stay very slow. Do you think that understanding the disease allowed you the opportunity 
or gave you the perspective to feel fortunate. I, you know, I can imagine that if you don't know anything about it, um, then it's really hard to feel lucky or, or feel that same way if you don't have some information. So information yeah. can both be scary and, you know, freeing in a way. Yeah, and um, I guess I have one opinion, and that is that I feel like a lot of uh, ALS patients um, struggle now with understanding a lot of the science that's going on. I, since I, you know, I'm an engineer and I'm involved in uh, material science. I, I can say that I think I understand what's going what's going on in the in a lot of the studies for ALS. I understand statistics enough to know when somebody is using a very small number of data points to to make a point that it's really not something you should put a lot of weight into. Um, so I think, unfortunately, a lot of patients get hooked into oh, this is the latest, greatest cure. Look, these three people did great. Um, I feel like my background gives me an aptitude to um, judge whether that's something I should put a lot of weight into or not. So it's kind of, it. it's easy for me to say that with a slow progression, but, you know, if my progression were to Accelerate. I think that I would want to find things that were going to be the the holy grail. Right. Um, but uh, to this point, um, I'm trying to be realistic in my understanding of of what's going on. I think a, a good example was you know, it was up at the ALS TDI's. Um, they had a. Uh, leadership uh, conference where they, they basically have a bunch of their scientists present some of their, their information. And, you know, rightly, I, know, I understand that there were, there were people in the audience that wanted to hear that what they were working on is going to be the next cure and it's going to come out um, in, in months. But but realistically, they don't have the data to support that. So it's it's kind of a it's it's an ugly pers- perspective to understand. Yeah. Somebody in my condition, but it's not. Um, it's not pretty. Do you think you know one thing from our perspective is, especially for many people at the ALS Association that have been working for many years, even for a short amount of years. Um, we know that, you know, oh, we found this new gene and it's very exciting, or we found that this new study is going to phase two, which is great. It's hard to thread the needle and be positive without, you know, giving false hope. And, you know, what's your thought on that? Like, we don't want, like, like you said, we don't want to tell people that this is going to be a cure unless we're a hundred percent sure, because we don't want to lie to people. Um, but I also want people to, to know about some of the positives going on as well. Right, so you know, I I enjoy those kind of communications because I because I like the science. Um, I like trying to understand the science. Um, 
but yeah, I think that it, it's got to be difficult to communicate that and not make it sound like it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, you know, it's interesting the work that the ALSTDI is doing. They're looking at the patients in a, with a very wide berth, you know, looking at genome sequences at one end all the way to um, their, motor, their motor neurons reaction to treatment and trying to tie the two things together. Um, it's, a, it's a super exciting project in my mind because it's, it's similar to some of the, the things that I actually do at work to try and do build transfer functions between uh, the inputs and outputs of a process. So it, it could potentially find uh, treatments quick that will make a difference for specific people, you know, people that have specific gene sequences. The problem is, is that it tells you what will work. If it, it potentially tells you what will work, then you have to go through the whole FDA process before you actually can use it. If it's, if it's a, a legitimate drug, it needs to go through that process. Yeah, and that process can be very frustrating because there's a reason for it. You know, they have yep. to make sure it understands that. And ALS is so um, diverse in terms of some people have slow progression, some people fast, some people have this genetic version, some people are at this age. And so you need to find out a wide enough group that, well, it affects people like Andy Miller, but it doesn't affect people like Tony Heil. So, right. you know, we need to get more more Andy Millers in, in this study so that we know if it's worthwhile for him to take it at a higher level. It, it can be, I can understand how frustrating it would be because I've seen so many people go through it. So the, the example that I, that I give when, when we, I have discussions about that with people is that, um, I had a doctor tell me that, um, they were, they were working on a, a clinical trial, uh, for this drug. And some report came out somewhere that said that this particular drug had shown huge benefit in this other study, and it's going to be, you know, the holy grail for ALS cure. And so that person wasn't sure if they were on the placebo or the actual drug. So they, t they took their pills that they were getting in the clinical trial they were on um, and had them tested to find out if they were a sugar pill or not. And it came, it, uh, they found out that it was they were taking the sugar pill. So they went to their primary care physician and somehow got their primary care physician to prescribe exactly what he was testing in the clinical trial. So they basically were, you know, pulling themselves out of the clinical trial and taking the drug anyway. And the end result of that clinical trial was that that drug was killing people faster. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of example that you, you can't, I mean, so I think it's like anything else. You can't believe everything you hear on TV or on the internet if it doesn't have any statistically proven data behind it, you really shouldn't be putting a lot of weight on it. I mean, I understand wanting to hope that things are going to be 
a solution, but um, in, in my job, you can't tell somebody uh, a certain, I don't know, settings on a machine are going to give you the, the proper material. You have to show them with data. Got to prove it. And I think it's another reason why we can't present false hope because we need to make sure that we, the ALS community, no matter if it's the ALS Association or other doctors or whomever, you know, we need to make sure that we continue to be credible and trustworthy. It's something we're always, you know, putting at a top priority because we need people to stay involved in those things. We need people to make the right decisions so that they don't say, oh, they're just... Because people are so skeptical of everything these days. If you tell someone the sky's blue, they're going to rush outside and say, no, it's probably pink. And so, you know, we need that's a good reason why we need to uh, make sure we get the information out as correctly as possible instead of just as fast as possible. Right. And, and, and maybe it's just wording, but, um, yeah, you just you need to be careful about leading people on. So it's a, it's a desperate situation. Um, yeah, people are looking for what the solution is. So let's let's move away from just uh, thinking about that so much. I mean, we we agree that we need to speak as hopefully but as honestly as possible. Um, but you mentioned before about the ice bucket challenge and that you had seen it and taken part of it. But that was before you were diagnosed, and I, I I don't want to forget about this. What were your thoughts going on then? Because you had had some symptoms. This might have been something on your head, um, in your brain going on. Uh, did you think about ALS during that time? Were you thinking about it any per personally, or was it just like, oh, that's some fad going on? Um, no, I I don't think I connected the two at all. Mm -hmm. I was convinced I had a pinched nerve somewhere um, because of the, the physical activity that I was doing. I mean, the, the, the prep for that marathon was pretty vigorous, so um, so all the, I figured, you know, some, some muscle was too tight somewhere and or I slipped the disc or, or something was causing that. Never, never imagined until um, the neurologist mentioned it that I could have a disease that was causing this, or a, a syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, that is causing this this problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, I never, never, never uh, connected to. And so do you think, I mean, I think that's kind of common. In one of our recent podcasts, I talked with Paul Miller, who's a person with ALS, and he realized that during the Ice Bucket Challenge, a lot of, especially young people, were doing it, and they did it because it was a social media phenomenon that didn't know about ALS. So he's been taking it now um, as kind of a responsibility himself to educate more people about the disease because... Now it's kind of on the tip of people's heads with that and Steve Gleason and many other things, but they yeah. people still don't really know it because it's not, you know, thankfully it's not as common as other things. Um, do you think now there's a bigger 
a responsibility and opportunity to educate people about the disease itself? Is that something you're trying to do with one and a half legs? Yeah. Um, that, that I think is, is my goal with that. I, I try, I kind of want to get into some of the science. Uh, I've done some of that. I, I need to do more. I have been involved in a bunch of studies going up to Boston next week to uh, donate some spinal fluid for a biomarker study. I've worked with uh, Drexel, uh, the Hahnemann, uh, on some of the, I actually donated tissue for them, and um, they have a uh, brain-computer interface that they're working on for ALS patients. Um, and I'm looking for, for more things to get involved in. Um, but I think that the, the science part is what I, I think I might be able to explain better to the layman. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't done a lot of that on one and a half legs of late, but I think as things come out, um, like things, uh, the brain computer interface and, and some of these other studies, I might be able to do that. They, I know I've, I've talked a little bit about the ALS TDI work that's going on. Um, they're converting uh, a skin sample that they took from me into a stents- uh, cell line and then from cell line into pluripotent uh, stem cells. So I'm kind of watching that process move along. And every once in a while I do talk about it. Um, I know there were, there were a few other ALS patients that actually used my post uh, on their own uh, to explain what was going on. So, what, uh, they're, what they're also involved in. I find that um, one of our goals is to make education, I mean, research easier to understand. And that's good that you're trying to do that as well. We have. Um, the National ALS Association's hired someone recently, uh, Dr. Jill Yursak, who was one of our first podcast guests, um, kind of take some of this complicated research and explain it in ways that regular people can understand. And so that's one thing we're doing. And then you mentioned the brain-computer interface. Um, I, I'd like to just shout out for self-promotion again that we have a couple podcasts about brain-computer interface. Obviously, Scott Mackler and the Mackler family very involved in that kind of research. Yep. and what they're doing um, and what he was doing for the, his whole life with ALS. Um, but we had some stuff going on at Hershey, through Hershey Medical Center that we're going to be ramping up even more so in 2016, um, and that's been going on for a while. And it, it seems like with ALS that as opposed to maybe some other diseases, there's a lot of research because of the symptoms of the disease that's beyond just drugs, that there's a, people can get involved in research in many ways beyond just, can you take a placebo or the, um, or the drug? And that seems kind of hopeful to me. Yep. And I know that there's, I know there's one, I think there's, I I considered getting into one, uh, I think it was down in John Hopkins about the effects of exercise, um, because I am still mobile, um, so that's another one to see to see if really continued exercise has any effect on progression. So I'll be interested to see those results. 
right? And I think that with some other diseases, you can't necessarily do that in the same way. So as someone who understands science yourself, um, as an engineer, do you like the fact that there's multi-pronged approaches to research across the board that maybe yep. be able to tell people, hey, this isn't a cure, but maybe we can extend the quality of life, or maybe we can, because if we can extend the quality of life, you know, just putting it as bluntly as possible, then those people can help us with other research projects and get us closer to cure in many other ways. Yeah, well, I've often wondered how many, so to that respect, I wonder how many, how much, and I ask this question sometimes when I'm with, so I ask this of people at Drexel um, and at uh, Mass General, um, how difficult is it for you to get volunteers? And sometimes they say it's, one of them said it was difficult. The other one said they had plenty. Um, so I, I kind of would like to show how not difficult it is <laughs> to get involved in research. And there is research that doesn't necessarily get you on a clinical trial because um, I know there are restrictions for most clinical trials. You have to be diagnosed or, or have symptoms within two years, or you, you can't be in it if you, you've had symptoms for two years, because uh, they want that initial, for whatever reason, they need to have that initial, um, the initial uh, progression uh, of the disease. But there are, you know, if you're past that, which I'm going to be past that here shortly, you can get involved in a lot of other research um, that doesn't involve drug testing. Um, you know, the biomarker thing I, don't, I think is somewhat misunderstood in that the reason that we have um, clinical trials that involve placebo today is because we don't have a method that has a that is a very good measurement of progression. Whereas if you had a chemical test that you could do that was repeatable, um, that had, that, that was a really good measurement, then you wouldn't need that placebo group to compare against. Yeah, because that, you could actually measure the progression exactly. That's a really good point. I think that people... It's hard to understand the fact that before we can answer a problem with research, you have to know what an answer is. You know, you have to be able to figure out, oh, is this working? Isn't just, are they walking where they couldn't walk before? Because a drug's not going to do that. And no. You're not going to take a drug and suddenly get up from your wheelchair if that's your case. You know, you need to be able to tell, is it doing this or that and the other thing. And it, it just right. makes research with ALS just so complicated and why, like you said, re getting involved in trials is not necessarily hard, depending on the situation. But we do need as many people as possible, um, if interested, to sign up and be part of it. Because there's a lot of different kinds of research that you can do. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's it's very true. And I think hopefully... We'll we'll get something, some sort of biomarker. <laughs> and then I would think that clinical trials would be a lot easier and a lot quicker to get results. So, 
Do you um, do you think that because of the ice bucket challenge and because of other things, I mean, right now there's obviously millions of dollars going into research that wasn't there before. Uh, Congress is appropriating more money because of the advocacy of uh, hundreds of thousands of people from across the country. Um, and, you know, we have people like Steve Gleason and many others who are um, very active at raising the profile. Do you think that there's going to be more people participating in research than ever before? Um, you think it's still a hard barrier to overcome just I, in their I, head? I think it's an unknown for most people. Yeah. And then, so maybe by documenting some of my experiences, it can, you know, not be afraid. I think one of the things that I, I wish was easily available is, and maybe it is available, but maybe the layman, is, it's a little difficult for the average person to understand the, uh, the um, clinicaltrials.gov website. Um, so I've done searching there, and that's how I found the Drexel connection and the Mass General connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of, I almost wish that, that doctors would suggest uh, that patients could be active in in some of the research that's local to them. Um, I mean, Philadelphia is not far away from me, so anything that's going on in Philadelphia, I should be able to participate in. Right, Philadelphia, and obviously you can do stuff in Maryland, and D.C., yep. and New Jersey. I mean, yep. thankfully, in a way, where we are at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter, we're connected geographically to so many top-notch places, like John Hopkins with our other clinics, and um, even out to the Hershey area with Hershey Medical Center. Like you said, it's not that hard to get to Boston, it's not that hard to get to um, even Virginia and whatnot. So as opposed to where people with ALS might be in, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Montana or, um, you know, Midwest or South. And even though there's some good places, it's just, it helps when there's a lot of places that you can get to, to participate. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you need to mention it's easy for me right now. <laughs> it's not so easy for some other patients. Well, and that, and that goes to your perspective. You said you feel fortunate, but also I, I think you may feel a responsibility that while you have the time and the ability, do what you can with it. Yep. And is that something you're trying to preach with one and a half legs, that you may have one and a half legs, but hey, Tony <laughs> or Jim, you have two legs, so what's your excuse? Right. Right. Well, yeah, trying to put trying to be as happy as possible on that website. I'm not trying to push any... <laughs> you do seem like a very happy and positive guy, so I mean, that's part of the reason we're talking. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't want to, I don't want it to be a depressing page in any way, so... Because, um, you know, it's become, this whole thing has become a giant science project to me, and I think that's been the best distraction. Um... Is that I look at it as a, a science project. I have the privilege, I have the opportunity to look at it as a science project and not worry about, you know, the next few months um, because of my the, the rate of progression. Not to 
make it sound like I'm not worried about any of that. Right. Got a whole bunch of, of decisions that need to be made for the house going forward, the car, um, lots of issues. So, well, we can talk about a positive thing that you I know you have also been involved with um, because you did the Mackler 5K, so you got to meet a lot of great people, including the Mackler family. Um, yep. And then you also did the walk to defeat ALS, which I was the first time we actually met face to face. Right. So, um, what were your feelings from those events? Were they? I mean, I find I like the walks a lot because I've been to a lot of them now, and um, it's nice to catch up with people. But uh, do you like coming to the events and getting to meet a lot of folks there who either are going through ALS or just there to be involved? Yeah. So I, I think um, the Scott Macker was was great except that it was the slowest 5k I've ever done in my life uh, <laughs> well I can't help you there <laughs> I think it crossed the line in I think it was an hour which is the slowest 5k ever 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 um, but yeah at, at that 5k we had a lot of uh, my family and friends and my wife's friends and neighbors um, and some of the people from work show up was great um and i think so we we so at the end they announced that 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 my team had actually raised the most money which i think was was kind of a surprise to me but um that just means next year i got to do it do even more work and get even more people involved that's a spirit (laughs) and i told scott's brother that you know i forget his name but um they need any help planning the event for next year to give me a holler. So, um, the Philly event, we kind of just went as a family, uh, certainly with a big turnout. Um, I think that now that we understand what it is, I think, uh, next year we'll have to try and get the one and a half legs team together to go do that as well. Yeah, I mean, the we were able to be at Citizens Bank Park, which we're at every year. Um, obviously, we're the principal charity of the Philadelphia Phillies, so you got the Fanatic there. Cody Ashley was at the walk. And, yep. you know, so it's a positive event. I There's so many people who I don't get to see very often that exist basically online for me. So having them there, um, you know, is a big boost, I think. Yep. Cool. So... We're starting uh, next year. We have a lot of events. I hope that we'll see you at the walk, and I hope that we'll see you at um, at the five k again, um, yep. and what you're already planning for, which is great. Um, we also have advocacy, which maybe you want to be a part of, and would love to have your voice advocating for more research funding in Washington. Yep. You think you're up for talking to senators and telling them what's what? My wife is is kind of interested. She's also a scientist, so she'd be a good person to to talk about that as well. She's interested in getting involved. Um, and sure, sure, I you know if I can, uh, I know that I know a few of those people from the Pennsylvania area that are going down there. Um, I'm not sure I can be as good as them, but hey, you know <laughs> every involved. Some of the best voices we've had in Washington, D.C. for funding things like the registry um, have been people that 
don't know a whole lot or, you know, don't have your science background. You, you mentioned the Colbys, I, maybe before we started, but um, great people. I love the Colbys. Um, neither Kristen nor Craig would tell call themselves an engineer, so I'm not right. calling them out, but they're wonderful advocates because they're able to tell a personal story, and your yeah. story would definitely make an impact talking to uh, lawmakers from anywhere. Okay. So... So we'll we'll look forward to having both of your legs, no matter their condition, uh, and your voice uh, helping us every step of the way for this cause. Cool. So before we go, how can people learn more about One and a Half Legs? Uh, it's just One and a Half Legs, all spelled out. Um, dot org. And there's a Facebook page to that too. Well, that so that that URL is tied to the Facebook page. So it takes you right to the Facebook page. So if you were to search one and a half legs within Facebook, it would just come up. So I encourage you all to learn more about Andy Miller. Go to one and a half legs.com. Look, look for it on Facebook. It's the same thing, like you said. Um, and uh, I'll look forward to working with you, hopefully, and doing some more things in the year and years to come. Well, thanks for joining our podcast and sharing your perspective. Again, anyone else, if you want to get involved with the fight against ALS, you can check us out at www.alsphiladelphia.org. Follow us on social media channels, all at ALS Philadelphia. And uh, you can also find a Walk to Defeat ALS. Spring walks are already up at gpcwalktodefeatals.org. And finally, if you want to get involved in a podcast yourself or have a story you'd like to suggest, that's Tony at ALSPhiladelphia.org. Just email me anytime and subscribe and like us on iTunes. Thanks again, Andy. We like talking with you. Thank you, Tony.